0: And I didn't copy that. I apologize. Uh, it's not recorded. But um, "Don't Waste Your Cancer" by John Piper is is the book, and it's only 15 pages. You can surely afford that. So, <laughs> so um, <clears throat> Isaiah five is not going to be a real happy passage. This this is going to be a tough one to work through. It is. Um, in light of chapters 1 to 4, a passage that is is assuming there's no more place for, for hope, there's no place for repentance in Israel. Judgment is certain, it must come, and so the whole passage is going to be talking about that. That's going to lead us into chapter 6, and then into chapter 7. We'll take a few weeks off after chapter 6, 2 or 3, and then come back to Isaiah so you don't just get wearied with uh, chapter 45. And this is the 90th week we've been in this. <laughs> so um, 2022. Uh, the uh, uh, chapter 5 has two parts in it. The first part is uh, what's, what people have called the song of the vineyard. I'm going to call it the wedding song of the vineyard. It starts out... In a way that looks like it's talking about a wedding, the, somebody is speaking. It's the friend of the of the of the groom who is speaking. Then the groom starts to speak in the rest of this passage, five one to seven. Um, so we have this. This is the vineyard, and this quotation um, vineyard is a standard metaphor for one's beloved. And Israelite love poetry, and you have all the different references to the Song of Solomon there. To uh, drive that home, so let's look at it. Verses one and two. The uh, probably the best man at the wedding is speaking. Uh, In fact, in light of our friend here, Jim, uh, I hope you were not offended by being called Jim. But uh, Sixto called called him Jim when he got up. But the Geneva Bible. Now will I sing to my beloved a song of my beloved to his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he hedged it and gathered out the stones of it, and he planted it with the best plants, and he built a tower in uh, the midst thereof and made a winepress therein. And and he looked um, uh, that it, it should bring forth grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Uh, just a comment or two here. The probability is that this is made. This this song is being delivered um, at some kind of public gathering, and there's a good reason. I say there's good reason. That one of the best places to find um, uh, Jews in Isaiah in Isaiah's day was in the temple. Uh, even a hundred years later, when Jeremiah <coughs> is functioning. Jeremiah chapter 7 has the, 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 um, the temple sermon in, in Jeremiah. And the people are coming out of their idolatrous temples and going up to the temple of the Lord and making sacrifices there too. You don't want to cover your bases. You know, you want to play the odds on this thing. So even in the time when the prophecies in Isaiah are, are finally going to be fulfilled in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the people are still gathering at the temple in, in, in great numbers. So probably uh, Isaiah is standing in the temple someplace in the courtyards there and singing this song. And the idea would be it started with a happy concept, a happy idea. People gather around to listen. Everybody likes to think about happy times, and so the wedding has been going on. And up, up until the last lines of verse 2, everything sounded good. Look at it again, verse 2. He hedged it. Look at this, this, this picture on the screen. And then look at verse 2. He hedged it, gathered out the stones of it. He planted it with uh, best plants and he built a tower in the midst of it. and Made a wine press therein. Wine press, it takes, I'm told, 10 years to get a, a vineyard producing so what 's he doing building a wine press? Are you with me here when you when you start a vineyard you don 't build a wine press. It takes a long time to produce the the vintage so what is he doing it's because he 's he's, he's acting in hope yeah. and he 's doing everything that you can imagine. Do you see back in the upper upper corner there the the tower yeah. um, if you had a, an ongoing uh, and, and a, a, an ongoing vineyard run by somebody who was wealthy, you would build a tower like that. Otherwise, you'd just build some kind of a lean-to, and and uh, people would stay there to guard the vintage as it's coming in, all the, the grapes and so on. Um, <clears throat> but this is a tower. This is a well-prepared vineyard. And so our text asks us, what more could my beloved have done? What What, what would you do in addition? In fact, this one shows... Only the stone uh, the stone wall there's also a line, a hedge of thorn bushes all the way around so so there's e- it's even better prepared than this one is and you see how tidy mm-hmm. that is it's even be- better prepared than that vineyard is so at the end of verse two then um, he uh, hewed out a wine vat in it, then he expected it to produce good grapes mine says. But it produced only worthless produce. yeah, yeah, I like that yeah i I read up i you you won't be you will be surprised that I don't know much about vines and vineyards and so forth, but I read up on this a little bit this week, and I found that if you take a wild uh grapevine and train it properly, it will produce good grapes, but it has to be trained properly, yes, Fred. I don't know much about agriculture or anything. Yeah. I understand why you have uh, walls around where you keep your sheep, so the wolves are uh-huh. in What's the purpose of big walls around a vineyard? Well, so People won't steal their grapes? or what's- Yeah, people and animals. Yeah, they'll get in there. And, yeah, so... Okay. Pardon? Kangaroos, yeah. If it was in Australia, you'd get kangaroos. Uh, <laughs> Say again? Yeah. So, 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 this is a well-prepared vineyard, uh, and because of the of the great preparation, it should produce good grapes. But in fact, what it gets, one commentator called it stink fruit. <laughs> um, so now, in verse three, and I'm going to go back to the NASV now. Uh, verse three. So now. The groom speaks. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Uh, what more was there to do for uh, my vineyard that I have not done in it? Now, your text, like mine, probably has capital letters for m- me and mine, yes? And so you're, in, you're um, uh, in the know on this. You know that Isaiah is talking about the Lord, But in the situation it wouldn't necessarily be that way. In the in the situation, Isaiah is speaking, and he begins now to speak in the voice of the of the husband. What what would what would go on in the minds of the hearers as they hear I prepared a vineyard, it was well prepared, what more could I do? Why did it produce bad grapes? What are they thinking? yeah what went wrong? Is it something on the on the side of the husband that caused it to go wrong no, no. what's where's the problem the people. with the bride yeah. so the the implication of this is going to be i think that now this happy time this happy song is turned into a call for judgment against the bride, and that's always something that men gathered in temples are what ready to do, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, So, he lays out for them what happened. Look at it. Verse 4 continues. What more was there uh, to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. And effectively, he's calling upon the, 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 the group gathered there to say, yes, you're right, do this, this is the right thing to do. Uh, let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. Here is who asked the question about why build a... Yeah, yeah. Um, I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled ground. I will lay it waste. I, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the crowd, uh, the clouds to rain, r- put no rain on it. Commentaries are, dis, are 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 disagreeing about how that should be read, but it seems to me that we, <laughs> who, who can command the clouds? <laughs> Suddenly, they now know because because the audience has been consenting. Yes, this is the right thing to do. Yes, do it. All of a sudden. They now know it's God who's speaking, and verse 6 continues, uh, verse uh, 7 continues, For the vineyard of uh, of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and they have pronounced judgment on themselves. And the men of Judah his delightful plant, thus he looked for justice, this is the good grapes, he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold distress. Uh, there's a there are puns going on here, in the Hebrew text. I looked for mishpat, and there was mispach. I looked for tzedakah, and there was a cry of tsakah. Punning on this. Judah is all that's left of the house of God of the people of Israel, the Northern Kingdom shortly will be if they're if they're not gone by the time chapter 5 is given they will be gone very soon hezekiah is coming to the throne not very long from now and they'll be gone the northern kingdom but as sinful as the northern kingdom was Jeremiah says that Judah is worse because the northern kingdom made made no real pretense of serving the lord Judah did. Mm I never thought about it in that context. Yeah. Because all they they ever had in the northern kingdom was losers. Well, yeah. And they had wicked kings all the way through. They were always idolatrous in one way or another. Their idols were not necessarily dedicated to false gods, but they were idols for the Lord, and that was banned from the very beginning. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. This is followed, then, by a series of statements of of, uh, alert. My text has woe at the beginning of verse 8, verse 11, uh, verse 18, 20, 21, and 22. Uh, Woe is too strong. But something like, this word is not used only when you're announcing trouble. It also is used when you're announcing uh, exciting things, good things. So woe is the wrong word, and it's terrible modern English. Nobody talks about woe is me anymore, except in a kind of joking way. Um, um, But this word would mean something like, look here. Listen to me. Are you with me here? And he repeats it six times. Is it no, it's hoy. Um, you know the expression hoy ve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Oi is always used in trouble, and then ve is the German word for trouble. <laughs> so trouble, trouble, Oy ve. Ve <laughs> mir. Uh, 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 trouble is is mine. But hoy is a different. It's h o y instead of o y. H uh, o y is is. Listen here. Listen up. And so six times he calls them to listen up. Let's hear what they listen, want, he wants them to listen up to. Let's, let's move on then here. You know. um, uh, verses 8 to 24 now. There are going to be judgments that are eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kinds of judgments. You know what that means, yes? What does it mean? Yeah, yeah, the same kind of thing. You, the, the punishment comes in the form of the sin committed or the crime committed. So here, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And there are several examples of this in the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In Genesis 3, um, man sins by eating, and so his punishment is to have a hard time getting food. Are you with me here? Um, uh, Jacob sins by cheating his father and his brother and he 's punished by being cheated by a father and sisters, yes, so you have all, all the way to revelation, and at one point when God turns the the water into blood, a voices a chorus from heaven sings, "They are worthy, you are just, they are worthy, for they poured out the blood of the of the of the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink the, you, you see the point then, so all the way from the beginning to the end of the Bible, this Talionic justice, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is used. So verse 8 through verse 10. Um, um, There are great landlords. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room, so that you may live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones, without occupants for ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield uh, but an ephah of grain now that communicates almost nothing yes what's a what's a what um, what are the two um, a bath of wine a bath of wine let's see I've got the stats someplace is six gallons. pardon six gallons. yeah, I was going to say that six gallons. And I I looked this up to see well what would an acre of of of, uh, vineyard produce in terms of uh, of wine today, and and they said it would be something like 650 bottles of wine. So divide that by five. What does that come out to be? Uh, 150 gallons, something like that. And this is 10 acres. But a 10-acre vineyard, therefore, should, should give us uh, 1,500 gallons of wine, and they're getting six. Uh, a homer of, of seed is a very small amount, uh, but, but 10 acres? A homer of, uh, I'm sorry, um, and what was it, an ephah of grain? Very small amount. Do you have a, ref, a, a reference there to the size? No, it doesn't, but let's okay. talk about this, God, what he's contending six sins, and that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. The The point is, then, these great landlords who have been buying up the land, um, that's not supposed to happen in Israel. The land doesn't belong to me. It belongs to my family, all my ancestors, and all my, my descendants. And for me to sell it, is to sell is to is to take for myself what what belongs to somebody else. It does happen in here, Jim. It okay. Says, uh, probably about six bushels. That's in one That's, in one bushel. that's number ten. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it says probably six bushels, in it, and that's first ten. Yeah. And then it's probably about uh, three fifths of a bushel. Yeah. So uh, the the efo would be about three fifths of a bushel. And a homer would be about ten bush bushels. So, the, it's, 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 they're they're putting the land together so that they can have more and more food. Yes, and grander and grander houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, less and, less. and and it's yielding less and less. In fact, it's probably more uh, that it's not just getting less; it's actually going to come as a, a crash. So the judgment, woe, you keep wanting more and more, the punishment is going to be you'll have less and less. The second woe, verses 11 to 17, woe to those, look here, you who rise up early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. Who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them? Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and by wine, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the works of his hands. I'm going to stop here. Later on, later on, he's going to call them heroes at drinking wine. Uh, I, st- I thought maybe I would bring my decorations from the army and say this one is for... Drinking more than anybody else in the company. This one was more. Are you with me? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> but I was asked to pray over a beer bust once. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> the company commander asked me to pray. Uh, how, what do I do now? So I did. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> strange things happen in the military. Uh, Did it turn the beer to water? It didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a Jeep trailer with ice, uh, full of ice and they tried to throw me in and it took 11 men to get me in. <laughs> so <laughs> I have not always been this, the man that you see before you tell <laughs> uh, uh, the, biggest, the biggest accomplishment these men have is getting drunk. So he follows that in verse 13 and verse 14 with two therefores. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. And their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Notice the judgment, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. They're drunks, so they're going to be Thirsty. Verse 14, the second, therefore, and it will take us on through verse 17. Therefore, <laughs> Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. And there's a, this is an image that comes both from Mesopotamian literature and from, from Egyptian literature. Death is the kind of thing that has an appetite that's unquenchable, its mouth. At one point, they describe death as having its jaw on the earth and its, uh, and its upper lip in the heavens. <laughs> Is swallowing down everybody. Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth. The word that, "do you have throat" in your text that can also be that can also. says, "opens its mouth without Yeah, the, this, this word is throat in Hebrew. Also, yeah, also uh, it can be translated as appetite. So this is the word, by the way, that's used in Deuteronomy six. Uh, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And perhaps appetite is the point of that. And all your strength. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into into it. All this celebration you're having in my temple is going to be wiped away. So the common man will be humbled and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud will also be abased, but the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Mind you, righteousness is a concept that we misunderstand often because we think of it primarily in terms of of, uh, good behavior. Righteousness is a fuller concept in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 46. We've done this before, but... I want you to—I to almost to learn to turn to Isaiah 46 to see what righteousness means in this book. Isaiah 46.12 Page 1029 <laughs> Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far off from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It is not far off. What's coming next? What do you think? If you... If you heard this, you who are far from righteousness, I'm speaking to you, and I say, I bring my righteousness near. It's not far off. What am I going to do? Payback time. Payback time. But what is it? Look at the rest of verse 13. And my salvation will not delay. Righteousness with God in this kind of context refers to doing what's necessary to maintain the relationship with Israel. He has to kill off some of them, but he's not going to lose his relationship with Israel. Isaiah 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Not in paths where I practice righteousness, paths where I experience his righteousness. Because he does not lead me into death, he leads me through the valley of death where I fear no evil. Do you follow? Right. He does what's necessary to maintain relationship. I want you to understand further that because we are Christians, we think of God in relationship with individuals. We must start thinking in the Old Testament of God in relationship with the nation. Right? So that God is going to sustain that relationship with the nation. Or else, Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name'sake. His reputation's on the line. If he loses Israel, he is no longer rightly called God. Mm-hmm. And this Isaiah is going to say in 41 to 44, 45. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this may not be a fair question, but in relationship to the Holocaust and where Israel is now, mm-hmm. there's a... The last time I looked, it's like 7% of Israel believes in God. Mm-hmm. The rest of them, are atheists, yeah. Or agnostic. Yeah. Um, so what happened in the Holocaust and then the regathering doesn't seem to have produced no. any righteousness. No. This is why I say the regathering to Israel since 1947, 40, earlier really, back in the 20, into the 19th century, is not a, pro- a fulfillment of prophecy. Mm-hmm. We're, it may be the precursor to it, but it's not a fulfillment of prophecy. We're not seeing the, uh, the prophecy fulfilled today. So Ezekiel 37, 38, where the gathering of dry bones, you don't see that? As... No. Because they're not coming back in faith. They are, they're an unbelieving people. Ellie Wiesel, you will know this name, um, Holocaust survivor, said his God died in the in prison camps. Um, he loved the Passover. He loved Sabbath as a child. He said, my God died in the prison camp. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to prefi- pre- pre- prefix, preface, how do you say those two words at the same time? Uh, pre-f- preface? Uh, this study today with what we saw in, in Piper is to, is to put this all in a context. You and I have to look at things differently. We can't look at things the way we traditionally do. Things are bad for me, so they must be bad. I, My favorite professor said a woman was at church one Sunday, and she was just carrying on about how bad her life was. And her pastor said, now, sister, you ought not to carry on so. She said, when God sends me tribulation, he expects me to tribulate, doesn't he? <laughs> and, and, of course, the answer in some respects is yes. Uh, we're not to be Pollyannas. Uh, oh, it's going to get better tomorrow. Eh, no, it might get worse. But I am, to, I am to view these, do you remember any of the things that we read from Piper? I am to view these things as the labor pains of the creation that's about to be reborn. When you are glorified, the creation will be glorified too. Am I making sense to you at all? Um, I must learn to, to look for opportunities to serve, not just opportunities to complain. Um, and so on, through the 11 points that Piper offered to us. So, verse 14, Therefore Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her den of revelry, and the, and the jubilant within her descend into it. So the common man will be humbled and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. But the Lord, God, the Lord of hosts will be exalted. Um, uh, in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. He will do what's necessary to maintain Israel in relationship with himself if it means wiping out a substantial portion of them. Was it only non believers who died in the judgments on the city of Jerusalem? No. Well, let me finish this. I'll, I'll come right back to you, I promise. If I forget, put your finger up again. Uh, If it was not only unbelievers, then of necessity the promises of a book like Isaiah have have to include life after death. Because if believers, if righteous people suffer equally with the wicked, then there is no righteousness, there is no justice. But if If the righteous are treated differently, then there is justice. The death of the righteous is a matter of sadness for us who are left. But you know, the day your godly mother died was the day she was ushered into the presence of the Lord. And you've seen that picture of the woman who has seen Jesus for the first time. Have you seen that? That, that is so powerful to me. It just speaks volumes to me. What's it going to mean to see him who died for us and lives for us? And Hebrews says he lives, is it Hebrews uh, or Romans? It's one of the two. <laughs> uh, he, he lives to make intercession for us. If I would never have said that. Jesus does not live to make intercession for me. He lives to give glory to his father. <laughs> But what, what the one who gave glory to his father is the one who inspired Paul to write, he lives to make intercession for us. And to know that he's been praying for me day after day after day, all through my life and before I was born. Yes? What, would, what will that mean to see him? So uh, there is no injustice here. But he goes on. Verse 17, then the lambs will graze as in their pasture. You wanted your big house for big parties. The only party that's going to be thrown there is is for the sheep. And strangers will eat in the waste places of of the wealthy. The third woe comes in verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as with cart ropes. Who say, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Hmm. Okay. We'll do it. So, verse, 20, uh, verse uh, uh, 20, the fourth woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Folks, we've been describing our own people. Yep. After 9 11, the churches were full. Where's, after, what, what year was that? 90 something, the, the Oklahoma City bombing. I can't remember what year that was, 90, 95. 95. 95. Um, mm-hmm. People started asking, where was God? God's where he's always been. The question was not where was God. The question is where were you? And we live in a fallen world. How can you expect to have things better? There are evil people. With that event in 95 and in in, uh, September 11th, even lost people started talking about evil in the world. Quit. Have you noticed that they quit? The only evil is what they disagree with. Oh, I'm sorry, Linda. <laughs> well, I forgot you. No, no Thank you, Jean. I appreciate it. Jean signaled to come back to you. Thank you. No, I just wanted to in reference to what you were saying on verse 10. Uh-huh. When he speaks of their honorable men. Yeah no the people the 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 men kind of men that the culture honors yeah yeah cuz righteous people do suffer yeah so I thought maybe no no it's not that at all we do you know therefore that um, postmodernism is is premodernism it's not postmodern at all it's quite premodern the issue is not that language can be co-opted and used for evil purposes now, because we now understand language it 's been that evil people have always done that, yes. and they call evil good and good evil and If you can do these things, notice it bitter, sweet, and sweet, bitter it 's left up to personal taste. What I like is the standard of good, and what i don 't like is the standard of evil, but then what you like is the standard of good and what you don't like is the standard of evil, and if what I like is not what you like, then to you I'm evil, but I'm really good. The yeah, Fifth. In the wordsmiths, as far as uh, pro-abortion, no, it's pro-choice. Yeah. It's you know. It, yeah. You just convolute the whole thing. So, fifth, uh, the fifth uh, judgment. Self wisdom. Woe to those. Um, who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Yeah, but a lot of college professors and high school teachers and five-year-olds. Because they know better. As you know the old saying, quick, hire a teenager while he still knows everything. Yes? Quick, hire a teenager while he still knows everything. Uh, uh, so, So But we're not we're not describing something only ancient. We're describing our own people, our own day. This is what we're living in. How shall we survive such a day as this? We must learn God's definitions of all these things. What is honorable? See, I have bought into it too. You have too. We have bought into an awful lot of the standards that, are, that our day is championing. We just say it in more careful ways and maybe in Christian ways and hide it. When I don't like something, then I think it's wrong. And what's God doing? How is God just if this happens to me? <laughs> when Mother got her cancer the third time in 10 years. <laughs> Uh, she never asked that. She may have thought it. I don't know. She's a human. She never she never overtly said it to my knowledge. But my my point is when trouble keeps coming and it keeps coming and it keeps coming and it's like it was in the on the coast of the Pacific in in southern California when I was there as a teenager my thankfully my cousin was a uh, licensed um uh, lifeguard but the undertow caught my feet wiped wiped my feet right out from under me I was going down and going out and I couldn't get up every time I would start to get up another wave hit and another wave hit and another wave hit some of you have had this experience you know what I'm talking about well, where is God? well my question was where is Barbara? <laughs> and I finally felt her hand on my arm pulling me out <laughs> but I wasn't theological enough to ask, where is God at that point in my life? But when the troubles keep coming, and they keep coming, and you think, where is God? It's because you're getting what you don't like, rather than learning to appreciate, learning to value, as John Piper is inviting us to do, learning to value what God's doing. So even the righteous who die with the wicked in the judgment of Jerusalem can do it in trust and in hope in God. Then there is the fifth, uh, sixth judgment, Um, impotent judges, and this takes us down to verse uh, 24. Uh, Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, and again, here's a therefore in verse 24 and another one in verse 25. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom will, be, will blow away like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, verse 25 now, um, let me read this. The progressive nature of sin leads to the arrogance which demands that God prove himself. The skepticism which doubts that he is active in the world and the blindness which cannot see him at work. You want to see God at work? Just look around. Um, This is one of the better commentaries. I didn't give the source. Yes, I did. This is one of the better commentaries on the book of Isaiah. Um, John Motier is is quite a good scholar and has written... a, a two good commentaries on Isaiah. Now in 5.18-23 5, 5, to 23, this frightening list poses the six questions by which um, the graph of collapsing human character can be traced. Uh, is, I can't see that on either the screen here or the screen there. Is sin <coughs> Okay. Is sin abhorred or relished? Verse 18. Verse 19. Is God reverenced or flouted? Verse 20. Are moral values seen as objective absolutes or as subjective preferences? Verse 21. Where is the authority which governs life through uh, 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 um, thought to reside? If you've ever seen the, the television show Monk, uh, in the opening song, hey, who's in charge here? Monk thinks he should be. Let me take care of this. You'll be happy later. <laughs> no, I want you to leave it alone. <laughs> but who's in charge here? When every kind of disaster is hitting, who's in charge here? Yeah, they always blame it on God. Yes. Please. Okay. Yeah. oh you were pointing up I thought you were wanting to answer the question <laughs> or ask a question uh, and, and then verse 22 what excites admiration and human achievement is it getting drunk is it having a notorious lifestyle is it the ability to manipulate the legal system to grab somebody's land what exactly is admirable? And finally, in verse 23, does the social system guarantee the punishment of guilt and the vindication of innocence? No. I have a friend who's a former West um, assistant, uh, U.S. attorney for West Tennessee, and he said his biggest problem with, with the court system now is that there are judges who either don't know or don't care about the laws of evidence and he said there there is and this was 20 years ago when he said this um, he said there is no guarantee of justice he said in the past when you went to when you went to court and it was a jury trial you could pretty what pretty much predict what the jury was going to do. he said, no more because the the judges will allow anything and everything into evidence or omit things that should be included. He said, they don't, either they don't know or they don't care about the laws of evidence. This passage now will come to a, conc- a conclusion in verses 26 to 30. Verse 25. On this account, the anger of the Lord has turned against his people, and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. But for all this... His anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth, and behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt in its waist undone, nor is its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all bows are bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint. And, li- and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness, and it roars like lions. By the way, they say that the lion's roar is the loudest of all the cats. And you, can't, you can hardly stand in the immediate vicinity of a lion. It can be heard up to five miles. Uh, tigers is the next loudest, and it can be heard up to two miles. Um, Its roaring is like a lioness, and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey, carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there's darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. This is the future for Israel. So what possible Result can come. And the answer, it looks. It, if one looks at the land, etc., the third movement of Isaiah's preface works according to its own logic. If there is nothing left for God and grace to do, then the light has indeed gone out. It looks as if the sad tale of the failure of the people of God has reached its appropriate terminus and as if the flashes of hope which marked the first two movements of the preface were no more, that is, what we've come through in chapters 1 to 4, were no more than might have beens. But can it really be so? You know, of course, that the answer is no, there is hope. But it's going to be hope in a God whose judgment... (laughs) we'll come through the message of deliverance. So we'll, we'll turn, we'll go on next time we're together. I think that'll be next week. I forget where we are. Yeah, next week. The next time we're together, we'll go to Isaiah 6 and begin, because chapter 6 is kind of a transition chapter. Um, it closes out chapters 1 to 5, but it also introduces chapters 7 to 11, or 12, actually. So we'll go on and do chapter 6. And get ready, we'll we'll see the end process. What is God's judgment like? How does he work? The way he's going to certify that these people will go into judgment is is by promising salvation to them. But by promising salvation, he promises not salvation to the individuals. He promises salvation to Israel. But if he promises salvation to Israel, it's for the Jew first... (coughs) And, and also for the Greek. So there's hope for us, too. Let's close with prayer. Father, we must learn to value things the way you do. And I don't know how to do that. It takes, well, you know what it takes, I'm telling you. It took a paradigm shift for me to get online with you, even in one small area of your thought. How much more, how many more paradigm shifts do I need before I can come to know you and to rejoice even in such times? Uh, When disease strikes, when your judgment strikes the world, when um, a fallen world reacts, with devastating storms, what, how do we react? How do we respond to you? How do we cling to you? Only like Job can I can I respond well. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So, Father, teach us that kind of faith. I don't want to learn it because it, t- it comes through hardship. But I must have that kind of faith, Father. So grant us that we may grow and trust you. And become uh, witnesses of the goodness of God in the midst of terrible circumstances, for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Yeah. You know, he's 18.: Yeah.